0: continuing our series on the most interesting man in heathenry uh, who doesn't always bloat but when he does he bloats to odin steve mcnallan
1: and uh, previously on the heathen history podcast we talked about the viking brotherhood we talked about his early life we also talked about his very interesting and colorful background i mean he really is an interesting guy and we talked about his formation of the Viking Brotherhood, of which eventually became the True Free Assembly.
0: A-Free-A right. A for short.
1: And then the collapse of that. So now we're going to get into what happened afterward, his years of working for an interesting magazine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the formation of the AFA we know today.
0: The yep. A-Folk-A.
1: Exactly. Right. So in
0: 1987, the original A-Free-A collapsed. Steve McNallan and his wife, Maddie, had been essentially working full-time jobs, keeping the AFA going on top of full-time jobs needed to keep a roof over their heads. And the strain uh, was simply too much. By November, um, McNallan had made it known that the AFA was defunct, and he didn't particularly want to be contacted.
1: Uh, and one of the thing. That he said afterward was, one of the hardest lessons learned from the old AFA was this. The time has not come for widespread public acceptance of Asitru. At one point, we exposed a million or so readers to our beliefs in newspaper articles that were published coast to coast. The piece in question presented the AFA fairly and in some detail, the a free a. Nevertheless, we received exactly two inquiries as a result. We must be content for now to grow slowly. We must seek quality rather than quantity.
0: I will give the man this. I don't agree with much about his politics, but he certainly put in the effort to build American Ossetru. And when the AFA collapsed, that was pretty much the only uh, heathen or Ossetru organization that was out there, at least that was public, Uh, The Theodish movement had gotten started. Uh, They weren't very open. There were the Odinist Fellowship and the Odinic Rite uh, were still going, but those tended to be a little bit out of the mainstream, and the AFA was pretty much the only mainstream uh, Asatru organization in the United States. They only had one real competitor. There was a guy by the name of N.J. Templin, who had an outfit called the Runic Society. Uh, They seem to have been very racist. Uh, He wrote in an article that only through Asatru can Aryan man be true to nature. Allegedly, uh, their long-term goals included forcing Greenland to surrender Denmark to be an Aryan homeland. And for reasons that I trust were fairly obvious, the Runic Society pretty much sank without a trace. They certainly did not pick up the banner after the original AFA had to let it fall, because N.J. Templin sounds like kind of a nut.
1: One of the, he offered a piece of advice to, after after the collapse, but before the formation of the A. Folke, that, and this is from a Jeffrey Kablan interview that was published in the Reconstruction of uh, Asatru and the Odin's Traditions, is that his idea was that the reason that Ositru didn't take off in the '80s is because people were so ignorant about history. So his suggestions were in this time period of kind of between the two, that Asa folks should support any efforts that will educate the public about our gods or the society with which they most identify with, namely the Vikings. Blah 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 blah. For this reason, we should boost Life Erikson Day. Wear t-shirts with Viking theme. Joins the Sons of Norway. Get the local library to purchase books on Norse history. So even though the, the A free A had collapsed, he was still in the business of promoting and wanting to get people to continue to bring awareness and kind of raise up the profile of Norse mythology and Asatrú. Um,
0: right. Uh, So he and uh, his wife, Maddie, turned to California. Uh, They lived in Nevada City, up in the Gold Country, for a while. Uh, He got a teaching license and taught middle school and spent his summers uh, working as a correspondent for Soldier of Fortune magazine. He met with um, a number of ethnic dissidents. Uh, He met with Tibetans that were resisting the Chinese occupation of Tibet, Uh, with Karens, uh, this ethnic group in Myanmar, now uh, formerly known as Burma, were uh, rebelling against the centralized government for their own independence, Uh, visited South Africa, interviewed mercenaries that were fighting in uh, Mozambique, I believe, unless it was Angola. I think both of them had uh, pretty serious violence at the time. It's been alleged, and this was by some articles put out by an anarchist ossetru group called Circle Ansuj, that at this time uh, he came into contact with uh, some rather hard, folkish beliefs held by the Boers, the Dutch-speaking residents of South Africa, uh, who as an embattled minority and in some cases oppressed by the British, had their very own ideas of being a people set apart and special, fulfilling their own destiny on their own land. He was allegedly influenced a bit in his folkish Asatru views by contacts with South African nationalism of the time, Boer nationalism. I haven't really been able to look into that. Uh, He wrote an article on the Boers for the journal Wolf Age, which the Asatru Folk Assembly put out as the Journal of the Warriors Guild. Unfortunately, I ordered a copy on eBay, and the post office uh, seemingly ate it. So I can't really say much about that aspect of his thought at this time, I'm afraid.
1: At this point in time, during this kind of time period, you also have a real rise in the activity stateside of the more racist, terrorist, you have incidents like Ruby Ridge, you have Waco, Mm -hmm. you have groups like the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, which Mm -hmm. was always my favorite racist group name.
0: Right. Yeah, based up in, what, outside of Harrison, Arkansas, I do believe. Indeed. Because because Harrison.
1: Originally uh, founded in Elijah, Missouri,
0: Ah. but uh,
1: who had compounds where people would go and stay I mean, There's a lot of, uh, there was also the attack uh, where the two police officers were killed in Russellville, Arkansas, just down the road. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty decent, large rise in what I would classify as right-wing terror in this era, too, that brought a lot of these
0: ideas more to the forefront of public consciousness. Right. And McNallan has some um, family ties to that. Uh, he had tried to get rid of some of the more extreme members of the original A. Frey, uh one of whom was a guy named Wyatt Calderberg, uh, who had left the A. A because it was uh, too soft on race. Uh, Calderberg has continued uh, to write and publish books on votonism and a very openly uh, white supremacist version of Asatru. Uh, McNallan's wife, Maddie, had a sister who was married to a uh, man named Joss Turner. Uh, Turner is deceased now. Uh, Even after he left the AFA, he stayed on good terms with McNallan. And uh, Joss Turner ran a group called the National Socialist Kindred, uh, which is pretty much as, you know, in your face as uh, you can be. You know, so, I
1: appreciate people who do that because mm-hmm. I just know looking at that, no, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have to go and meet these people. I know
0: that they're done. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're good. Right. It's it's just so much easier when they put the broken glass right on the top of the salad. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: This is an era. I mean, I remember this particular era because I remember, you know, I grew up. My dad worked for the federal government. My dad had been at uh, the Oklahoma City Federal Building two weeks before the bombing by Timothy
0: McVeigh. That was, what, 95?
1: Yes. So, I mean, I remember these, this, and I remember Waco very clearly because it happened while I was at space camp. Mm -hmm. You know, these things are are very etched in the memory for someone of of my age that, you know, this was this huge rise, and it really did bring to the forefront. And I think, you know, just this is my own from talking with people I know who are racist heathens because we, it's Arkansas, we have them, Mm Um, in the same way that you kind of see that rise now, these acts of lone wolf terrorism and right-wing terrorism, which were being encouraged through Mm -hmm. these groups, brought, here's, you know, you had, you know, Steve the crazy whack job um, who lives in town, and he's just Steve the crazy whack job kind of by himself. Now he's learned there's other whack jobs that believe like him. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of brought more of these whack jobs out of the woodwork. And a lot of them flock to Ossetru because they want you know, I mean, mm-hmm. kind of one of the tenets of the white supremacy thing is Jews are bad.
0: So why be a part of a Jewish religion? Right. And McNallan is still trying to publicly disavow open Nazis uh, because they're certainly bad for PR, but he still got these connections with the movement. He knows people who know people. Uh, at some point in his history, he became associated with David Duke, uh, whom I remember very well because I was in New Orleans when he ran for Louisiana State Senate and actually won a seat and then challenged Edwin Edwards uh, in the governor's race in, I believe, 1992.
1: Which led to the bumper sticker vote, vote for, for the, the crook. crook. It's, it's important. important. Because Edward Edwards had been indicted on
0: several crimes. Right. David Duke had actually led a Klan group in his early days, but he was trying to put that aside and go corporate. And I remember he gave a speech on TV just before the election in which he avowed that there was not a bit of hatred in his heart for any race. He was simply for his own, but bore no ill will towards anybody else. Uh, It didn't sound all that convincing coming from him and it didn't really sound all that convincing coming from Steve McNallan, but you've got the same, I'm not racist, but.
1: Um, Just to, just to let you know, he is back involved with these groups along with. Who McNallan is? No, uh, David David Duke. Duke. Along with Stormfront and uh, all these other things. Um, He's also, Mm. as, as my, as my late grandfather would say, nuttier than squirrel turds.
0: Right. Yeah. Edwards um, gave one of the great political lines of the century uh, when he pointed out at one of their debates uh, that he and David Duke were actually a lot alike because they were both wizards under the sheets. <laughs> Just, <laughs> just, that, that. just one of my favorite things that any politician has ever said. Edward mm. certainly had a gift for the turn of phrase, yes, so and the turn of money, but that's another story
1: he so he but he did spend this time in the summer working for and for those of you mm-hmm. who don't know about Soldier of Fortune, Soldier of Fortune was this magazine that was supposedly for you know mercenary soldiers. Although most of the people who subscribed to Soldier of Fortune were probably more like Dale Gribble from uh, King of the Hill <laughs> than actual mercenaries. It was kind of a right. way to let the the nutty conspiracy it was, it was very proto-Glenn Beck as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, it allowed them to kind of live out this fantasy of being soldiers for hire mm-hmm. that they probably would never be because they're too busy driving the bugabago around.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, McNallan wrote for this publication, and just to give you an idea of what he was thinking at the time, uh, we tracked down an article of his from 1989 uh, called War with a Designer Label. Yes. Most of which I'm not going to cite. He's talking about developments in uh, U.S. special forces doctrine, uh, the ways that our government is organizing and trying to conceive of the role of special forces and counterinsurgency, uh, guerrilla war, things like that, uh, which he was definitely in favor of, he himself being an airborne ranger. Um, But he does not like the way that the government is trying to go about it. And most of this I'm in no position to critique, but he writes, perhaps we have trouble learning from experience because we are basically an ahistorical nation, The two centuries of our formal existence make us mere children on the grand historical scale. The German town of Rothenburg observed its 12th century as we celebrated the bicentennial. In eagerness to assert our uniqueness, we have perhaps separated ourselves too forcefully from our European roots and thus lost the perspective that history can give. It could be, too, that the overall tone of American culture since the end of World War II is to blame. We live from fad to fad at the prodding of marketing experts and advertising agencies, the rapid rise and fall of rock stars and movie stars, the endless flicker of here-yesterday-gone-now sitcoms, the blurring succession of hula hoops, love beads, and pet rocks that have in turn held our attention— all hardly encourage permanence, purpose, or even orderly change. That's a message he would return to after the refounding of the A Folk A. I was not able to find it, and if I had, I probably couldn't have used it here because of copyright issues. But he put out a CD, uh, circa 2000 and don't care, called Vision, uh, that was his spoken word, Uh, suggestions uh, for how to build Asatru and how it was the remedy to the malaise of modern man. And it was very countercultural in the sense of very dissatisfied with consumerism. Uh, He thought that modern society was turning us into, I think he said, mindless automatons conditioned only to produce, consume, and obey. I think that's uh, the words that he used or close to it. So he's not a fan of baby boomer, consumerist American culture, and still very concerned that modern society has cut itself off from its authentic uh, roots, uh, which is certainly something that would continue um, into the new incarnation of the AFA, the A-Folké. In
1: Gods of the Blood, which we've cited quite a bit, he does talk about um, wolf age which was a qu- the quarterly publication by the Warriors Guild of the AFA, I'm assuming is the Folk Assembly?
0: I think it started with the Free Assembly, free and it might have gotten refounded after the A Folk A was, was founded.
1: But he, uh, he basically called it um, a poor man's version of Soldier of Fortune. So he continued to publish this kind of stuff mm-hmm. even after he got out All of right. doing
0: that. He also did serve in a California National Guard unit. Mm-hmm. He went back to you know, army service, and was actually uh, mobilized in response to the Rodney King riots. Uh, He mentions in his uh, biography that uh, I am no doubt one of the few men in America to have stood on the famous corner of Hollywood and Vine with a loaded M16 rifle. So he's continued to maintain his private devotion to the Norse gods and to serve in the National Guard and write this for Soldier of Fortune, and eventually he gets over the scars of the past and begins refounding, begins getting the band back together, as they say in Blues Brothers.
1: And at some point in here, he and Maddie got divorced. He and Maddie Hutter got divorced, and he remarried to his third wife...
0: Sheila. Sheila. Sheila Edland.
1: Who, uh, I believe, is still his wife.
0: Yeah, he's married to her even now.
1: Um... So something here I found from an interview um, from, with him where he said part of the reason he got back into this was your typical Wiccan, your typical Neopagan tends to be a person who is more into what I call soft virtues, the virtues of cooperation and kindness and being mellow. I find that my kind of Ossotru affects a different kind of person who is more attracted to what I call hard virtues, courage honor guts endurance and control so uh and then in 96 he also says that um he got back into he got back into being a into also true and with this because of his he appalled he was appalled finding it populated with direct quote liberals affirmative action also black gothar and new agers
0: right um he uh, published a book in 2015 called Asatru, A Native European Spirituality. It's kind of his, I think, final great manifesto. I'm um, holding it up so you can, to the mic so you can see it. So that way you
1: don't have to buy it right. ever.
0: Right. And I'm riffling the pages so that you can, as proof that I've got it here. And uh, he writes on page 65. In 1994, I saw signs that a corrupt faction was making inroads into the Germanic religious movement in the United States. Individuals and groups had emerged which denied the innate connection of Germanic religion and Germanic people, saying, in effect, that ancestral heritage did not matter. This error could not be allowed to become dominant. I decided to re enter the fray and throw my influence behind Ausatruh as it had been practiced in America since the founding of the Viking Brotherhood back in the 1970s.
1: Now, uh, at this time is when he and his third wife established Colossa Kindred, um, which was affiliated with the Austral Alliance, and uh, that was when, where they lived in
0: uh, Grass up, Valley. Yeah, up in the Sierra Nevadas yes. of California again.
1: And with that, then, of course, he founded... The also true Folk
0: Assembly. Right, uh, we uh, started the Rune Stone up again, and it grew into a rather attractive uh, magazine with a, a glossy cover uh, that at one time uh, was distributed by uh, Tower. If anyone remembers Tower Records, yeah, um, they usually had a very good selection of offbeat. Uh, periodicals and uh, books, and both the Runestone and Wolf Age, uh, were distributed on newsstands through Tower Records for a while.
1: So um, the AFA the AFOK was reestablished in 1994.
0: Right. Um, Incidentally, in an interview he did with Vortru, uh, McNallan made it clear that this corrupt element uh, that was denying the conception the connection between. Uh, ancestry and religion was in fact the ring of troth. So yeah, that was us. That was us. Mm -hmm. It's our fault.
1: Um, So another thing that he did that I found really interesting is he also established the Asatru Community Church, which held Sunday services twice a month in the community room at the Nevada or Nevada, depending on how you pronounce it and where you are, uh, County Library. However, he did Admit that was not very successful. Um, and that is not the only person mm-hmm. who's ever tried to do that um, because that has been tried before and failed. Um, so definitely, mm-hmm. if you're going to start a cult at, that meets in a library, don't try to do an awesome true cult.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, you know, focus or not, in most places, there's probably, we probably just don't have the density to, you know, found a, a church-like organization with regular meetings. We're just too scattered for that still.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's conversations that a lot of pagan groups are having. Mm-hmm. Um, so around this same time, if you go back to episode three, was when Elsa Christensen went to prison.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: Stephen McNallan was part of the—he uh, helped form the um, Free Elsa Christensen
0: Committee. Right. They raised money for her defense and uh, were able to get her a lawyer. And um, she did get deported, but they were able to make arrangements for her to stay uh, with a fellow Asatruar in Vancouver instead of being just left on the streets of Windsor, Ontario.
1: And during this time, he also developed um, friendships with Michael Moyenhan? Monahan. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, Ron McVann, who was the co founder of Wotan's Folk, who are, and they published mm-hmm. some of their writings in the Runestone. Uh, Moyhan is a black metal artist who is characterized as being a fascist. Mm-hmm. So, you know.
0: Certainly plays with that. I've not met the man, and I'm not sure where his true ideology lies. Uh, but he wrote a, uh, uh, a book on uh, black metal, uh, the subgenre of heavy metal uh, that has an awful lot of screaming in it. Uh, no, that's death metal. Oh, death sorry. metal does the growls. Black metal does the screams. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, get it, get it straight here. Sorry. And uh, Norwegian black metal was particularly black. You had people that were sleeping in graveyards and. You know,
1: murdering people. That, well,
0: that yeah, there was this burning kind of,
1: churches down. There,
0: there was this kind of attempt to to see who you could one up. Yeah, so there were people that were you know eating dead rats and stuff like that because you know they could, uh, which sort of culminated with uh, Varg Vikernes in the band Mayhem uh, murdering his bandmate uh, after having burned down several churches, including a historic medieval uh, stave church. Uh, that was roughly 800 years old.
1: So this is where actually the the connection with Ron McVann and Wotensvolk would be where he actually got in connection with David Lane.
0: Right. Um, Lane had been arrested as the getaway driver uh, in the murder of Alan Berg, a uh, talk show host in Denver. Uh, the group he was a part of, The Order, Yes. Uh, had been trying to foment race war and had been committing uh, robberies, including an armored car heist, uh, raising money for the coming racial holy war.
1: And um, he is also the person who founded the 14 Word Press. Right. Which is, the 14 words are a very, like, thing that a lot of the white supremacist groups use. Right.
0: Lane, uh, had, Lane yeah. had gotten into Odinism in prison. And developed a rather virulent strain of it called Votanism. Um, he and his wife and this artist Ron McVan uh, had been publishing uh, books on uh, the subject. And McVan is a very talented artist uh, who'd illustrated them uh, rather compellingly, uh, but very much a uh, outright racist, white supremacist strain of Asatru. Um And, yeah, David Lane coined the 14 words, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children.
1: And really was definitely, you know, probably one of the biggest folk heroes of the white supremacist movement, period.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, in some circles he's considered a martyr for the cause.
1: um, And uh, just even though this is jumping a little forward, In, uh, so in 2017, even though there had been some conflict between David Lane and Steve McNallan, he did come out in 2017.
0: McNallan came out. I think Lane had died by then. Yeah, he died in
1: 2007. McNallan came out and actually said the, and endorsed the 14 words in 2017. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. He, he actually He also said he cut it down to uh, to the eight words, "The existence of my people is not negotiable." So again, you see developments that have been going on ever since the '70s that on the one hand, they're not racist and they like everybody and think everyone should be free to follow their own uh, spiritual development. At the same time, there's that constant fear that white Europeans are under sustained assault. So you've got, you know, we don't fear other races, but we fear other races, or at least we fear the forces that are trying to crush out our unique uh, whiteness and the unique uh, glow of our pasty flesh or something like that.
1: Right. And for those of you who would like to like check up on my work here, uh, his, his, uh, McNallan's endorsement of the 14 words is from an article titled What I Really Think About Race. It was posted on altright.com in 2017, and you can find it on its entirety on the internet if you just support, if you search What I Really Think About Race, Steve McNallan. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not like making this, you know, I, I, people say, oh, people can, you know, the argument always is he's not really a racist. Listen, it's there, he wrote it. Go look yeah. for yourself
0: he's taken a definite turn to the right uh, in uh, recent years, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. yeah,
1: I just because it was the David Lane thing, I kind of wanted to go in here mm-hmm. so um
0: so anyway, so we're back in uh the mid nineties yes, uh where he has gotten the band back together. Dream of the nineties
1: is alive, and Odin is home.
0: I guess I don't know it's the, the original. Port- the
1: Portlandia. The dream of the 90s is live in Portland. All the hot chicks wear glasses. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Theme song of the show Portlandia okay. for like all six of you who watch it. Okay. Where it's all, still the 90s. All the hot
0: dudes wear horn helmets. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Um, he's still uh, promoting his idea of metagenetics. This idea that your spirituality is determined by your genes Uh, He did withdraw from his earlier position that religion was literally encoded in your DNA. Uh, It now depends on some kind of non-material spiritual factors, uh, which makes it conveniently uh, untestable by the scientific method. Uh, And and he draws again on the work of people like Rupert Sheldrake, uh, who had come up with this idea of morphogenetic resonance fields.
1: 1986, one of my favorite incidents in heathen history. Mm -hmm. So to give you a little background, McNallan is really pushing this ethno-nationalist belief so much that he endorsed the 1993 Declaration of the War Against Exporters of Lakota Spirituality, so expressed the opinion that white people should resurrect the religions of their European ancestors rather than adopting the belief systems of Native Americans. However... He uh, came back into conflict with them thanks to the Kennewick man. Mm-hmm. Then, who was the Kennewick man?
0: Okay. In 1996, uh, there was a skeleton unearthed in Washington State near the town of Kennewick. Um, now, the U.S. had just recently passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, it had been pretty common for... Archaeologist, anthropologist, or just anybody who was looking for the next hot collectible uh, to go digging up Native American graves and keeping whatever they wanted to.
1: So, this was like the American version of the mummy unwrapping parties from Victorian England.
0: Yeah, something like that. And uh, finally, uh, Congress passed NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, mandating that. There was already protection for artifacts. The uh, American Antiquities Act was passed back in I want to say '03 or something like that. Uh, but this made it clear that if Native American remains were found, then their closest living relatives had to be identified, and that tribe had to be given the remains in accordance to uh, for them to. Um, Treat in accordance with whatever their tribal custom was. Uh, so the skeleton of Kennewick Man would have been given to the local uh, Pacific Northwest tribes. The thing is that his physical features didn't seem typical of Native Americans. Now, having said that, I'll add that Native Americans actually have a pretty wide range of of facial features, not all tribes everywhere have what we think of as the stereotype of you know very high cheekbones and a um, you know narrow nose. You know, not all tribes have that kind of uh, phenotype. Uh, but when Kennewick Man's skull, uh, when they used that to reconstruct his face, uh, the reconstruction bore a rather striking resemblance uh, to Patrick Stewart
1: which to be fair was mm. not the best reconstruction either the uh Umatia people who were the tribe who wanted the kennewick man back mm-hmm. um would have argued that it was not a great reconstruction and um
0: well any any forensic reconstruction is going to is a guess yeah i mean it can be a good guess, but it's still not—it's not, never going to be perfect.
1: And I think most people said that he didn't necessarily look Anglo, mm-hmm. you know, or European. He looked more Polynesian yeah, there, or South Asian.
0: Yeah, there were suggestions he might have been connected to the Polynesians or possibly the Ainu, uh, the indigenous people of uh, northern Japan. Um. So there was—at the time— with science being in the state as it, as it was, there was reasonable doubt as to whether Kenwick Mann was actually related to the Umatilla and uh, related tribes of uh, Washington State. Right. Anthropologists suspected that he might be related to an, um, a group that had not migrated with the initial Native American migrations to North America. Maybe he'd come in a different wave or from somewhere else.
1: Uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. he married into a group that came over. Right. You never know.
0: I mean. And if, if that's true, if he's not actually related to uh, the Umatilla people, then the Umatilla have no legal right to receive the remains. Right. Just because it was found in their traditional land does not prove that it's actually related to them. Now, the Umatilla believe that they have always been there since the beginning of the world. Uh, they don't believe their ancestors came across the Bering Strait or from anywhere else. So from their point of view, if an old skeleton that's not you know, demonstrably a, a settler um, is found on their land, it has to be their ancestors because there's nobody else it could be. And... and so the federal government starts stepping into a battle of conflicting worldviews. Um, anthropologists wanted permission to study the bones. The Umatilla wanted their ancestor back. And the AFA jumps headfirst into the legal battle in October 1996, uh, claiming that Kennewick Man was, in fact, an ancient European and a follower of a version of Ossetru that was recognizable. So just
1: to throw back to our first episode on the true Free mm-hmm. assembly, um, there were the Runestone, in the early Runestone, there were actually articles about the Viking ship found in the Bering Strait and the Viking ship found in California that were mysteriously damaged during the earthquake in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And he was using some of that argument mm-hmm. to try to say that this was going to be proof that the white people were in this part of their—during the Ice
0: Age. Right. He came up—well, he didn't come up with this, but there was a theory at the time called the Salutrian Hypothesis, uh, which points out that stone tools of—call uh, it about 13,000 years ago in Europe, uh, belonging to this culture called the Salutrian or the late Gravettian, either or— Uh, that their style of stone tools looks a lot like what were thought to be the earliest Native American tools uh, produced by people we call the Clovis uh, Mm -hmm. culture, after Clovis, New Mexico, uh, where they were first found. Um, And there were people, and I think it's pretty much been refuted, but it wasn't completely fringe. It wasn't really out there. Uh, But there were academics that were suggesting that some of the earliest settlers of America might have come not across the Bering Strait from Asia, uh, but by hopping around the Atlantic Rim, uh, ultimately from Europe, uh, bringing their stone tool styles with them. And again, this is not thought to be true now, uh, but there was at least some evidence that could be claimed in its support, and McNallan certainly went for it in a big way. Um, There's several articles in the new version of the runestone Uh, not just about Kennewick man, but about various other sites where native remains supposedly look uh, suspiciously European. Uh, There's a big article uh, by, I think it is called Spirit Lake, Nevada, also has some remains of natives that were thought to be quasi-European.
1: Yeah, and that that makes that interesting because I feel like this is, from a personal analysis point of view, I feel like this is a, in a way, it's You know, a lot of times one of the arguments against America being, you know, against racists who want America to be a white ethnostate is, Mm -hmm. well, you know, Native Americans. Right. The fact of the matter is this argument here, this idea that that he put forth in this lawsuit that um, there had been a Caucasian presence in prehistoric America that Mm -hmm. were consequently wiped out by the Native Americans gives these people, the mental gymnastics, to be able to say, well, that's why America should be a Caucasian.
0: Right. And this had been going on again since uh, at least the 18th and 19th centuries. You have things like claims that the the Mandan tribe uh, was a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Indians that spoke Welsh. Uh, The truth is they don't. The Mandan, sadly, the last fluent native speaker died a few years ago Uh, But the Mandan language has absolutely nothing to do with with Welsh or any European language. But the idea was attractive. Hey, not too far from where we're doing this podcast, uh, there are some famous uh, Native American um, structures known as the Toltec Mounds. Yes. Very nice little state park you can visit. And... You know, in order for Europeans to claim the land, one of the strategies they used was delegitimizing uh, the Native American presence by saying, you know, these great mounds could not possibly have been built by these brown-skinned people that we're trying to exterminate so we can have their land. They must have been built by some mysterious race of mound builders or Toltecs or... Aliens. You know, that is the subtext of Chariots of the Gods, Von Daniken's book about aliens building the pyramids. Uh, Aliens must have built the pyramids because the brown-skinned people living there were clearly too stupid to have done it themselves. There is a definite racial subtext in uh, Von Daniken's book, but it's just part of a long history of, you know, delegitimizing native claims to the land.
1: So in October 1996, the AFA, and let's be honest here, Steve McNallan, filed a suit in the U.S. District Court of Portland to prevent Kennewick man being given to the Native communities under the Native, uh, under that Native Mm -hmm. American Graves Protection Repatriation Act.
0: Um, He writes in um, spring of 97 in the Runestone, the Ossetru Folk Assembly stepped in with a lawsuit saying, in effect, wait just a minute this may be one of our kin, back off until we know who this person really was. But he goes on to talk about his conviction that Kennewick man was in fact uh, kin to Europeans, not literally an ancestor, but a cousin. And he writes, the mighty powers didn't spring into existence with the beginning of the Viking Age or with the first band of Germans, Votan and Frigg and all the Great Ones are at least as old as our branch of the human race. They have evolved, continually revealing themselves with new names and new attributes as our ability to understand them grows. Kennewick Man would not have known the name of Tyr, but he would have recognized the Shining One in the sky, later revealed to us as Tiwaz and later as Tyr. Beyond this, Kennewick Man is Kin, Not literally an ancestor, none of us are his descendants, but clearly a cousin. He represents a branch of our people, a limb of the family tree that grew through America's back door long before our own forebears ever dreamed of sailing the Atlantic. The fact that we are biologically related is enough to provide a spiritual link. We share the same folk soul, the same essence, the same corner of the collective unconscious. The man who died on the banks of the Columbia nine thousand years ago was one of us. He helped write a chapter of our history that has, until now, been obscured, and we will not desert him.
1: And that is interesting because he did take this to the he did take this to court. Mm-hmm. Um, I really am finding conflicting information as to whether or not. What actually happened other than he took it to court? He won at some point one round.
0: Right. They won the right to do a a ritual over the bones. Um, So they went to, I believe, the Burke Museum in Seattle at the University of Washington where the bones were stored while the mess was cleared up. And I've got an article from the Walla Walla Union Bulletin of uh, August 28, 1997, uh, called Asatru Sect Honors Kennewick Remains. It's got a picture of uh, McNallan and somebody named Scott Miller, and McNallan is holding up his hammer. And it says, uh, the leader of a pagan sect tied to Norse gods led a religious ceremony over the 9,300 year bones of Kennewick man Wednesday. Dressed in a blue cloak and carrying a symbolic hammer, In the style of the Norse god Thor, Stephen McNallan raised his hands and gave thanks to the earth for preserving the bones. We are here to give thanks to the elements of the universe that protected this individual that the world calls Kennewick Man, said McNallan, leader of the Asatru Folk Assembly. So they did a public ceremony at the site where Kennewick Man was found, and then ten were allowed to gather in a vault at, sorry, it's not the Burke Museum, it was the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Uh, they were allowed to recite verses over the bones and pass a horn filled with juice. They weren't allowed to use mead. And so they did get permission to hold some ceremonies. Right. And I talked with Jefferson Calico, uh, wrote this really good book called American Viking. Yes. Uh, well worth a read.
1: Which I ordered a copy of and mm-hmm. didn't, it did not come in in time. So it's supposed mm-hmm. to be your Monday.
0: Right. But I talked to him at a conference we attended back in March, and he's been looking at these events uh, basically as public performance. Uh, what McNallan may have really thought about Kennewick Man, I don't know. The point is he's using Kennewick Man to A, you know, get the. Also true and the a f a out there, I mean, I know he said that he believed in slow growth and was kind of disillusioned with the publicity he'd been trying to do. Uh, that newspaper article was read by a million people, and he got two inquiries right, but really, I don't think the man could keep himself out of the the limelight for that long. He's looking for publicity more to the point he's looking for a particular type of performance.
1: And I mean, as someone who has worked in the broadcasting industry, who's worked in public relations, the man is brilliant when it comes to public relations. I mean, there's a uh, article dated April 2nd, 1998 from the New York times old school Mm -hmm. gets white looks stirring dispute. Uh, So there's absolutely all of this information about Kenwick man and specifically about the afa's lawsuit i mean mm-hmm. the national press coverage is you know i i do public relations for the troth and man i am busting my butt to get regional and local press coverage let alone some sort of natural press coverage he he's an attractive man mm-hmm. i can say that objectively he is speaks well on camera he is like the ideal poster child for any kind of movement and he's been able since this point forward to really control the media narrative mm-hmm. of what
0: Asatru is. Right. It goes beyond that. It's not just trying to get publicity. McNallan's um, always had these kind of European nationalist views. Uh, we've seen that in early episodes. Episodes. Issues. We've seen that in early issues of The runestone. Um, and in the 90s, he, along with quite a lot of other Californians, I might add, I remember because I was in Berkeley at the time, uh, started getting uh, a serious bee in the old bonnet about illegal immigration. Yeah. Uh, oh, same is, song, second verse.
1: Oh, is this the is this my my second favorite story in heathenry? Odin versus the Mexican god.
0: Yeah, Votan versus Tezcatlipoca, the spiritual war for California and the Southwest. Uh, he publishes this in the summer of ninety eight. It's in issue twenty two of the Rune Stone, uh, which I'm holding up to the mic so you can see it. It's blue.
1: It's it, very pretty.
0: It's blue. It's got this. But. Yeah, it's got nice art, I'll give it yeah, that. But the, yeah,
1: the very top cover story,
0: mm-hmm. Clash of the Gods. Votan versus Tezcatlipoca. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And apparently some of the uh, radical Chicanos uh, were trying to revive the old religion of Mexico, uh, Tonancin, which he misspells, uh, Tonancin, the uh, mother goddess of the Aztecs, quote, is seen of the goddess who will lead the children of the sun into this new land. Uh, Tonantzin, by the way, is strongly identified with the Virgin of Guadalupe. Yes. Uh, That vision actually occurred on the site of a temple to her. And um, what he does is basically recast illegal immigration as a spiritual battle. Um, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Right. Right. Uh, Chicano organizations have a vision of uh, a homeland called Aztlan, uh, which would become a Mexican homeland uh, with everybody else expelled. Uh, He claimed that what they were trying to do was reclaim uh, what had been Mexican territory uh, until we took it in the Mexican War uh, back in 1848, I think, was when that treaty was signed.
1: So— yeah that to me these these events I have to agree with uh, mr. calico. Mm-hmm. I do think that some of this stuff very much was meant to drive up publicity to tap into mm-hmm. current events it right. it would be it's very proactive public relations
0: mm-hmm. but here's here's the other thing um if you can prove that Europeans following something related to Asatru were here as far back as the Native Americans were, you know, you can say, hey, we're not newcomers here. You know, we're taking back our ancestral lands, not stealing them from people who have a better title than us. It, I, th- I think Calico said it inscribes us in the landscape uh, it makes Asatru truly an indigenous religion, just as indigenous as the tribal ways of the Mexicans, the Umatilla, or anybody else. In with fact,
1: fact, funny thing about titles yeah, to land: mm-hmm. uh, titles to land will come up uh, shortly when it comes to the AFA. Ah,
0: uh, yes. But um, um, in an interview with Matthias Gardell um, in the book "Gods of the Blood." McNallan actually pointed out that Kennewick Man had died by violence. And it's true. They found a big spear point in his pelvis. And as he put it, it reopens the question, who genocided who? Oh. Maybe Europeans genociding the natives was not something we should be guilty about because Native Americans had genocided European types like Kennewick Man. And that means that Europeans have at least as good a claim to North America as their ancestral heritage land, as the Native Americans have, and certainly as the Mexicans have. So it makes us no longer have—we don't have to be concerned anymore with being colonists uh, who dispossess the natives— We are native peoples on the land ourselves. And as he writes, uh, there are two possible scenarios. This is in the Votan versus Tezcatlipoca article. One is that people of European descent will resign themselves to a subordinate role. Our culture will be replaced by others, mainly Hispanic. However, there is another possibility that we will rise from our slumber and resist this tide of cultural and demographic conquest. I am, of course, referring to nonviolent resistance in the form of legislation, a cultural rebirth, and an awareness of ourselves as a people who deserve to survive. As one who loves my ancestors and who is not willing to throw away what they have won, I have no honorable choice but to fight for my people and my culture against all odds. And so that His position on Kennewick Man is part of a larger strategy to legitimize European claims on North America as a homeland and make Asatru not something that he dreamed up reading Conan books in 1968, but a truly indigenous Native American, not Native American, but Native and American uh, religion. Um, establishing, you know, Europeans' right to be here at least as good as any Native people have. So that... And it ties in with the delegitimization I was talking about of, you know, ascribing Native remains to people who are not Native, like uh, the Welsh or the mysterious Toltecs or aliens or whoever it might be.
1: So in with all this in the late 90s uh the A folk A also uh in 99 almost acquired land in northern california uh they were going to basically build some sort of like uh, uh, a true communal project where there was going to be a hof there was going to mm-hmm. be land for agriculture and it it for someone who is so big on individualism this does smell of communism
0: mm-hmm. Or at least a commune. Yeah, a commune. You know, a hippie commune with shorter hair, I suppose.
1: And uh, unfortunately, uh, there were they were told the land was going to be donated, or they said. The, the statement, The official statement was that this land was going to be donated to them, and so they did build a hof there. And then the owner of the land said, no, no, we're not going to mm-hmm. donate this. And so they did lose that land. And then eventually in 2015, they were able to um, open, they uh, acquired a former Grange Hall in Brownsville, California, and were able to build a hof there.
0: Right. That had been, you know, acquiring land for a hof and things like that has been, you know, the goal of many heathen organizations. It's certainly something that the Troth has at least discussed. I mean, it's something our kindred is. Mm -hmm eventually wanting to work towards right but practically it's just been a very difficult thing to uh to do you know especially when you've got a movement whose members are not necessarily flush with cash
1: yes so
0: except for that guy who was on the the Sweet life of zach and cody i'll bet he could
1: and now owns his own meadery
0: and now owns his own meadery in new york i bet he could buy a hoff if he wanted to
1: and his uh although someone did buy the former bible land a heathen group did buy Bible land and turn that into a, a heathen worship place, which I is my favorite, mm-hmm. one of my favorite things ever. Right. So
0: anyway, to to finish the yeah. uh, Kennewick man story, um, the AFA ran out of money. Um, um, they could no longer you know, afford to pay their lawyer uh, and dropped out of the case. The punchline is that the course, the courts did eventually turn the skeleton over to the scientists. Uh, they won, and they sampled DNA from Kennewick McMahon's bones. Uh, they redid the physical measurements, and guess what? Kennewick McMahon was always related to the local tribes. He was a close relative of the Umatilla and other tribes of the region, and he had no close European connections at all.
1: Now, one thing that I actually really – one thing that did come from this was the amendment to that bill in 2005 by John McCain that pretty much changed the laws so that you didn't necessarily have to prove exactly which tribe. You know, they Mm -hmm. basically would have given Kennewick Mann those rights.
0: Right. So – So in 2017, uh, the bones were returned to mm -hmm. the local tribes – uh, they held an intertribal ceremony uh, over Kennewick Man's bones and buried them in an undisclosed location. And that's pretty much the end of the story.
1: And that is the rest. Now you know
0: the rest of the story. Exactly. So, yeah, Kennewick Man was not a European ancestor at all, um, but McNallan had been able to use the possibility that he was. Uh, to score some pretty big rhetorical points and get uh, quite a lot of press on the nationwide stage.
1: Now he really pushed that press forward and the the a folk a I'm gonna say from a point of view, from a kind of agnostic public relations point of view, they were very early adopters on the World Wide Web. They were early adopters of YouTube, Facebook, pretty much anything that's been out there, mm-hmm. they utilized uh, to continue to get their message mm-hmm. out there. McNallan got himself listed as a religious expert with the Religious News Service. He did all of these things that really... Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the last few episodes of the new Runestone um, are a lot thinner uh, because they started moving from uh, print journal uh, to content for their website... Uh, Incidentally, since then, they just started doing this a few months ago, uh, but they've actually started scanning and putting up PDFs of some of the uh, very old uh, RuneStone issues, including some of the ones we've mentioned on uh, this and previous uh, podcast episodes. So a lot of what we say can now be confirmed pretty easily.
1: So from 2001 to 2005, uh, they stopped publishing the stone, and they stopped taking individual web memberships as well.
0: Yeah, they carried on as a, uh, as a website. They put a lot of uh, old content up. Uh, certainly the articles on metagenetics were reprinted uh, on their website. Uh, a great deal of other material was, but they stopped being a membership-based organization
1: so uh but they did open back up to memberships in 2005 and then um build a network uh that was called folk builders which were regional representatives of the organization Uh, not that different from every other heathen organization the troth has stewards which has been one and i am currently one um odin's children has representatives the i forget what some of the other groups. But yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much every national heathen organization in
0: America has some program like this. Right. McNallan had long been talking about trying to reestablish tribes. Yes. And had probably recognized that simply as a practical matter, you know, if you're going to do outreach, you can't just keep it in print and the web. You've got to have boots on the ground and people who can at least help you make personal contact, you know, you've got to have that if you're going to have a viable religion.
1: Yeah, and he definitely did kind of push forward that idea of tribes and developing these kind of extended families of choice, which mm-hmm. is kind of what a modern kindred really is for a lot of groups. Um, his reasoning for it being, you know, because they're coming after us, the white genocide, I don't agree with, but that's pretty much how we've run our kindred, because there is evidence of that kind of idea of the family and community being the basis of the, the old mm-hmm. ways. And so don't agree with his reasoning, but agree with the methodology, mm-hmm. as comes to a lot of stuff with McNallan, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's definitely a it's definitely Interesting, just how much he really has influenced. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely boots on the ground because heathenry doesn't take place in pages; it doesn't take place online. It takes place face to face. So, but so they went back. They have this tribe builder program, mm-hmm. which was pretty right. successful.
0: Right. Uh, they resurrected the rune stone yet again, but as a, um, um, I think the hope was it was going to be an annual, a yearbook, uh, yearbook. Uh, so far, they've only put out one. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of that. Um, But again, a lot of... They've recently started with a newsletter that's available in PDF format uh, online. And McNallan's ties to the alt-right have gotten more and more obvious um, in uh, the past years. Around the
1: time, uh, the turn of the 21st century... Uh, McNallan did get really more inv- involved with politics um, he became president of the european american issues forum which is a group that was devoted to advancing the rights of quote white americans end quote of which he'd been a long-standing member of that group and that group according to calico is that wrote a dangerous it wrote the dangerous margins of racist politics He did resign, however. Um, He did at some point in time in those early 2000s develop colon cancer.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. There was that. In 2011, uh, the AFA sent a contingent uh, to the annual conference of a group called the National Policy Institute, which is operated by uh, the white nationalist um, Richard B. Spencer. It's kind of a white supremacist think tank and lobby group. And McNallan protested rather angrily that his members all had freedom of conscience and they were there, you know, purely as private citizens, but it's still not uh, a very good look.
1: He also uh, started writing for Richard Spencer's the alternative right Mm -hmm. in 2010 right uh which at that point in time that was very much uh and that was also written you know a ton of other white nationalists have written for that site and richard spencer is the infamous nazi who got punched Mm -hmm. so he's the one that that. he looks like he walked out of a hitler youth ad he's really yeah Mm -hmm. um he also in 2009 he was invited to the international austro summer camp But because so many European groups opposed it, that invitation was rescinded because what they perceived as racist views. Mm -hmm. He also uh, started a Facebook group to promote environmental heathenry in 2012 and started a nonprofit group called Forever Elephants in 2013, to combat ivory poaching in Africa. Mm-hmm. Totally behind that. Good job, dude. Yeah.
0: I like his record on environmental and ecological issues. You know, yes. He's not wrong when it, he talks about needing to save, you know, earth from the exploitation that it's, uh, that, that it's getting because the earth is sacred and holy and, you know, needs to be treated with respect. I'm, I am quite behind him as far as that goes. And
1: then, of course, from 2009 to 2014, he also worked as a juvenile corrections officer. Right. Which he retired in 2014.
0: Right. And in 2016, he retired as head of the AFA. Right. uh, Replaced by uh, the spokesman has been Matt Flavel. Is yes. that Flavel or Flavel?
1: Flavel. Um, actually, Flavel? it's it's been pretty much turned over to the joint leadership of Matt Flavel. Flavel is what I've always been heard. Flavel, okay. Um, Fla-
0: can I call him Flavel Flave? Yes. Does he wear a very big force hammer around his neck?
1: So to Matt Flavel, Alan Turnage, and Patricia Hall. But before that was he released his... his uh, giant work, which we've quoted from earlier, the book Asatru, A Native European Spirituality.
0: I'm holding it up to the mic and riffling the pages. The
1: art see. on that, I, lo- I, I really love the Odin on the front of that. Like, the art on it is beautiful. I don't
0: know. The Odin on the front of it looks kind of peeved. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I would be too if I were forced to be on Steve McNeiland's book.
0: Okay, good point. Good yeah, point. I mean,
1: he retired, and this is from him, he retired to focus on new projects as a writer and religious leader. However, mm-hmm. that's also when he really, I think, once he retired is when he really kind of did the stuff that was, that kind of cut his ties of being, the moderate racist mm-hmm. and that's when he
0: He's t- taking the butt out of yes i you know.
1: where he basically went in and said he, he furthered a rumor that uh, white women were being assaulted by arab men in germany which was not true said and i'll quote here germany that is the german people are not sellout traders like merkel deserve our full support where are the Frey corps when we need them um, and, of course, the Frey Corps being the White Ring paramilitaries who carried out street violence and political associations between World War I and World War
0: II. Right. Yeah. That, and, of course, he angrily protested that what he meant was not really what he meant. Regardless of what he may have actually meant, the optics are pretty bad on that. Um, and he does seem to be turning more and more towards pretty open um, uh, white nationalism, uh, right, the, the gloves have kind of come off there. And then Flavel posted that uh, message in 2016 uh, in which they state the AFA would like to make it clear that we believe gender is not a social construct. It is a beautiful gift from the holy powers and from our ancestors. The AFA celebrates our feminine ladies, our masculine gentlemen, and above all, our beautiful white children.
1: He came out, um, and also everyone who criticized the AFA were social justice warriors. Right. Uh, so in 2017, in March, uh, McNallan came out with his, on YouTube, and he uh, specifically claimed allegiance to the white race, to white nationalist policies, and his ex- allegiance to the 14 words. Right. He did um, this
0: video of what Stephen McNallan really thinks about race, Uh, His four points are race is real. Uh, Race is important. I love my race. I will defend my race. And race is real. There's a lot being said in academia about how race isn't real. Now, race is very much real if you grow up in the United States because it determines things like what drinking fountain you're allowed to use yeah uh or certainly it did for a very long time i mean as a social reality it's very much real biologically there's not there's very little genetic difference between races there's much more genetic diversity within races um richard Lewontin. uh Geneticist who discovered a lot of basic techniques that we use for looking at genetic diversity um, pointed out that you could wipe out every human on the planet except for the Zulu and you'd still preserve 95% of human genetic diversity. There's much more variation within group than there is between group. There's very little DNA that every quote white person has and no member of any other race has. There's very little that's exclusive to whites or blacks or Asians as we define them. And what there is is often inconsequential. Those DNA markers that you can get tested uh, for Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever, most of those don't actually do anything. Uh, They're little pieces of junk DNA that get passed down from one generation to the next uh, because they don't do anything. They're kind of like those useless antiques that get handed down in families because nobody wants to get rid of Meemaw's ugly ashtray or whatever it is. Yeah, they're the ugly family ashtrays of our genetic heritage. Um, And this has not sat very well uh, with folks on the right. So for McNallan, he's having none of this race is objectively genetically real. Uh, setting himself against the vast majority of the anthropology community. Race is important. I love my race, and I will defend my race with words but with other means if I have to, I think is what he says.
1: Uh, and also during this time period, he had a personal website called uh, The Path of Odin, uh, which has great articles in it um, like Everything You Need to Know to Get Started on the Path of Odin, um, A Method of Transcendence in Germanic Tradition, and the one that I talked Mm -hmm. about on Twitter, which was Jack LaLanne, workout guru and spiritual guru.
0: Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Which, once again, I never thought I'd be taking on talking about Jack LaLanne on a heathen podcast. But um, he was very enamored with Jack LaLanne Mm -hmm. and Jack LaLanne's philosophy of life.
0: Now, I'm... For any of our listeners who were born after 1960, who is Jack Lalanne?
1: Jack Lalanne was a physical fitness guru from the era, uh, early era of television, all the way till his death in 2010. Mm-hmm. I think um, he opened the very first uh, health club, fitness club in uh, Oakland, California, in 1936, mm-hmm. and he lived to the age of 96. He drank, ate no flour or sugar. He ate lots of vegetables. But this quote here that that McNeiland seemed to be so enamored with, because I've seen it in multiple things he's written, was this quote from Jack LaLanne. Billy Graham is for the hereafter. I'm for the here and now. The good old days are right now. Focus on this moment. Um, and it was definitely... Uh, Talking, he really got in there talking about the world rejecting and world accepting theology, which is true. But yeah, very much. This is a. There's some really. There's only he maybe only wrote about six or maybe ten little articles on this thing here. But it's quite. I mean, it's quite great about everything you need to know. And then of course, um, he starts really heavily promoting the um, Edred Thorson books and why Mm -hmm. do you know why that has been
0: why is that
1: because around 2013 he got exclusive rights to produce to reproduce and publish all of thorson's work
0: right so although well thorson is actually republishing a lot of his old work through a press of his own so i don't think the afa got the right to all of it uh they did get the right to a book of troth which was published by Llewellyn. It was Thorson's original draft for how the Ring of Troth would work. And then I I gather we've kind of disappointed him rather badly uh, because we're not doing what he said we were supposed to do. Um, But the AFA got the right to that, and I think they got the right to...
1: So many of them. Yeah, Yeah. the
0: translation of the Icelandic grimoire that he did. I think it was the Galdra book. Thorson's... More obscure works are being republished uh, together with some new work of his by Lodestar Press, uh, which is Thorson's reincarnation, if you like, of the old Runa Raven Press. So I don't think the AFA is publishing everything. Uh, but they certainly got some very choice titles.
1: Yeah, and they did issue a joint statement back in uh, two thousand and thirteen, basically saying that they had that he had given these uh, writings over to Rune Raven to uh, or not to to the AFA after Runa Raven folded mm-hmm. But there are uh, they purchased the rights to many of these important manuscripts. so and so they were published now under Rune Stone. Um Which, fortunately, um, there are enough used copies of a book of troth that you really want to read it, Mm -hmm. you can find it.
0: Yeah, there's not that many. But uh, the problem is Llewellyn didn't print them very well, and they have this nasty habit of falling apart if you try to, like, actually read them. Yeah, you can—I've got copies of the first and second editions.
1: I I just know that you can go on Amazon, and there's probably 20—there's—the 2003 edition is— Very easily found. Mm -hmm. There's currently like 27 different people selling it on on Amazon right now. Right. So, uh, just if you ever want to read it and don't want to pay AFA, Mm -hmm. just a note. But they were able to do that. They have continued with a lot of work in that regard. They have gotten, but yeah, definitely gone much more far to the right. You see um, AFA participating in, uh, AFA members openly participating in things like the Charlottesville rally. Right. Um, You see people uh, being very openly, uh, it's definitely openly Mm -hmm. anti-gay, openly anti-trans. They're definitely aligned with that very right wing Mm -hmm. part of the country right now. Um, which kind of one of the big kind of dividing factors when you look at the articles written in like the 90s between Odinson and the AFA was the AFA was soft racist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a
0: racist, but now you could still be a member and subscribe to the Runestone and maybe claim a certain degree of plausible deniability.
1: Right. That you just can't do anymore ever since, especially since uh, he retired.
0: Mm hmm. And that's just... Right. And then the Southern Poverty Law Center declared the AFA a hate group. Um, the AFA responded with some choice things about the Southern Poverty Law Center, most of which I don't think I can repeat. Um, but then uh, just recently, McNallan got turfed off uh, Facebook.
1: Yeah. He uh, is no longer... He was mm-hmm. uh, kicked off on that whole... Um, when they did that big purge of Nazis.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, he since migrated to other venues because there will always be other venues. Uh,
1: one of the other things that he also has been doing recently is doing a lot of partnerships with Red Ice TV and Red Ice Radio, which mm-hmm. is an openly racist, heathen uh, network. Right. Uh, that also does work with the um, Odinic Right, which has always been very openly racist.
0: Right. And I'll say this, he is a very, I've had the pleasure of meeting him twice. Uh, once he gave a talk at um, one of the meetups, I think it was the Feast of Ostara, or it might have been Aegir's Feast, um, a big kindred in California, the Hammer of Thor kindred, used to hold gatherings at a campground in Big Sur, and this was kind of a big deal for the community. It, People of all stripes came. Uh, I remember seeing him and Diana Paxson having a very civil conversation in a field, and you know neither one burst into flame or anything like that. Uh, they got along reasonably well. And I got to meet him uh, a little bit after that in, I think, 2005. Uh, there was an online uh, discussion group called Our Mead Hall,
1: I remember our meet-all. Yeah,
0: they actually held in-person moots in Missouri, and he came out to one of them and uh, sold his books and uh, ended up leading a a very late-night bloat to Odin, uh, which I hardly remember because I'd driven all night to get there and uh, was pretty much completely wiped out, but... I managed to prop myself upright until the end of the bloat. So I can say I have stood in bloat with Steve McNallan. Oh, the, and, thing,
1: the things we could do when we were younger, yeah. Ben.
0: Ah, uh, yes. And he is, he is a very, or he can be a very charming, pleasant man with a great fund of stories and a very suave way of speaking. I mean, when I called him the most interesting man in heathenry, he does remind me somewhat of the, the guy who does the commercials um, because he has done a great deal of very interesting things and he's very good at putting across this very smooth and suave uh, persona. I mean, I certainly don't regret meeting him. I wish I could have spent more time. He looks like somebody who'd be great just to chew the fat with and he certainly has you know, without him, we would not have heathenry in the U.S., or if we did, it would look very different. If without him, maybe N.J. Templin would have gotten Greenland as an Aryan homeland, and we'd all be living there. I hope not. Probably not, but so, you never know.
1: So, um, and I will say the kind of one of the best reflections I've seen written about the modern AFA, and this was actually written before MacNallan retired, but I think it's worth a read, is checking out um, – jennifer schnook's american heathens right where she talks about she decided to join all the major organizations to try to do this it is a wonderful like academic server survey of heathenry in the modern era in 2015 so her account of joining the afa and then having to go through like a tribunal because they were so suspicious of her and all this other crazy stuff and the ideological purity that was required to be a member even back then is Mm -hmm. fascinating and i think if you get a chance pick up the book regardless because one we we love scotty as she's her nickname uh but two it's a great look uh, about politics of identity in the pagan religious movement and i think it's very interesting
0: we should maybe we could have her on our show
1: i'm sure we will i just you know
0: Yeah, one of the things I took from her book is that, I think I said this in an earlier podcast, uh, that heathenry is not as countercultural as perhaps it would like to think. No. That, you know, we're, we're not really breaking away from, you know, American culture. We still very much reflect the culture that we came from and the stresses over race and immigration and sexuality and things like that. That divide us is basically exactly the same thing that America in general uh, is divided over. Uh, We're not really that countercultural. We're pretty much squarely in the mainstream, except we worship Odin and drink out of horns.
1: I I think the only thing I saw in that book that really was out of the mainstream is you're more likely as a heathen to identify, not identify as a member of one of the major political parties. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to identify, compared to the mainstream, as a libertarian or a centrist or non-registered with a party. That's really the only thing I found, and I totally buy into that because I have been— I've been Mm. way too many heathen gatherings with people who are libertarians who don't like it when I tear apart their libertarian philosophy with actual libertarianism.
0: Right. But that's another story. Yeah. Can I do the last verse? Yes. Did not need no welfare state? Everybody pulled his weight. Gee, our Viking ships sailed great. Those Those were the days yes we had kind of a train wreck there because I didn't know who was going high I don't know okay. it was bad yeah.
1: Um, but yeah they're you know so
0: I always wanted to sing to a national audience Was so i probably driven off Inter- our national audience
1: international but, audience we have that one listener you know Oh, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Hi. So, first of all, I just want to we're wrap this up. I want to say thank you so much to our patrons. You guys have been great to support us through this. And if you want to be a patron of this show, get some sneak peeks, special gifts, uh, t-shirts, stickers, Mm -hmm. access to the Heathen History Facebook group where you can ask Ben questions and his wife makes him answer them. Or just to get the random and weird updates I post on Patreon about my research, such as... Jack mm-hmm. and heathenry uh go to patreon it's patreon.com for slash heathen history it's just a small monthly amount to make sure mm. that we can continue to put forth the heathen history podcast
0: for that matter if you know something about heathen history because you lived it and you'd like to be on our show give us a call uh we'll certainly take um uh, proposals for uh, guests on here there's no reason we should do all the talking
1: or if you have a, a heathen uh, event and you'd like us to come do a live podcast because that was so much fun yeah yeah
0: we need to do that again
1: yeah and we will be doing it again we'll be doing it at uh, midwest winter moot in november but if you have something you'd like us to come do a live show get a hold of us if mm-hmm. it's if it's within driving distance from little rock arkansas we'll
0: probably show up all right and hey it's if- on the very slim chance that Steve McNallan's actually listening. Call me. Call yeah, me. Give us a call. We'll have, you on the, we'll have you on the show. We've done as good research as we can, but you were there and we weren't. So... I won't even argue politics with you. I just want to hear what it was like. Mm-hmm. All right.
1: And you, how can you contact us, Ben?
0: Well, you can follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash History for updates And as always, our show notes and copious list of sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. I don't even know if they're actually going to
1: fit this time in the podcast description like we normally do. Um, So our theme music is Happy Viking. It's by Roller Music. For the Heathen History Podcast, my name
0: is Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wasail. Wasail, y'all.